Book of John, we are going to finish up with chapter 20 and 21. He did 19 last time, right? Good. Okay. I'm on the right track. Here we have what I would like to call a triad of witnesses or multiple triads of witnesses. You know how... Uh, some of these other chapters I have given single names to. Well, this one, it has several things that are in triplicate uh, in this particular chapter. Like, for instance, how many people were at the tomb in chapter 20 when they showed up there in this chapter? Not in other chapters, but in this chapter, there were three. One is Mary Magdalene, the other is Peter, and the other is... Pardon me? No, not Nicodemus. It was the the one who shall not be named, right? He didn't want to talk about himself, so we know it's the Apostle John. At least it's firmly believed that it is the Apostle John. But in another chapter, I think it's in Mark chapter 16, there were three women that showed up. And that was Mary, Mary, and Mary. Uh, Mary Salome. Uh, it is thought that she is actually the sister of Mary, which you start reading about that and you go, wait, so Mary's mother, who is a a mother of Jesus, had two daughters and one was made named Mary and the other one was named Mary. And it gets kind of confusing. Do you guys know how many Marys are in the New Testament? Do you know? (laughs) It, It depends on who you talk to. You don't know if there's three, four, or six. Uh, it, it varies. So we have Mary, the mother of Jesus, right? We have Mary, who is married to Zebedee, who has two sons. Remember their sons' names? James, or Joseph, and John. Those two, the sons of thunder. Then you have Mary of Bethany. You have Mary Magdalene. You have Mary in the book of Romans chapter 16. Uh, those Marys are all there, but there is this controversy, not really controversy, but if you start checking it out, it looks like Mary Magdalene is the same as Mary of Bethany. Mary of Bethany is the Mary that is the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And you start digging into that and you go, well, wait, she's called Mary Magdalene on one hand. On the other hand, she's called Mary from Bethany. And seems to be the same woman who broke the alabaster box that had the anointing oil in it and anointed Jesus' feet and his hair and all of that. And so it's an interesting study to go through. But some of that can be kind of confusing. You get into the weeds with some of that. But these triads, we'll get into them a little bit. But I want to start with John chapter 20, verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, what day is that? Sunday, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one who loved and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. The first one you have there, number one, there were three named human witnesses that viewed the empty tomb. And they were, again, as I just told you, Peter, the other disciple, which we believe is John, and Mary. Now, how many people does it take 
to establish a matter if you're in a court of law. According to scripture, it's two or three. So we have three here. Verse four, both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying as she wept. She bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. There were probably, number two there, three angels at the tomb who could bear witness. Now, the reason we say this, if you go to not only this section of Scripture, but Matthew chapter 28, Mark chapter 16, Luke 24, they all talk about this particular time. And there's one angel that came down and moved the stone and sat upon it. Then when you looked inside, there were two angels on the inside. Some people would say, well, it doesn't mean there there was three, there was maybe two, but one account has only one, and you know, there's probably a total of three. We're not going to be dogmatic on that, but it appears from the scriptures that that is the case. And so there are three angels bearing witness along with three people bearing witness to this resurrection. Now, there are more that come along, but in this particular chapter, we just want to make sure that we stick with the facts. In Matthew chapter 28, it says, For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And so from the scripture here, like I said, there seems to be this triad of witnesses to the resurrection. Verse 13, They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was a gardener, noble profession. She said, Sir, if you have carried away him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. So Mary was the first person, a woman, to see Jesus. Now, the first person to see Jesus in the beginning in Genesis, because we believe that to be a Christophany, was who? Adam, right? At the creation, it was Adam. It was a man. The second Adam, the first person to see the resurrected Christ was who? A woman. And we know that God is not a respecter of persons. Why would God reveal himself to a woman first after the resurrection, and not one of the disciples. Now, I don't know. But he chose a woman to reveal himself. Now, we can speculate as to the reason, but it certainly tells us that God, again, is not a respecter of persons. In Galatians 3.28, 
There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, could you imagine if Peter was the one who was at the tomb first, what may have happened to all of Christendom? Because wasn't Peter considered the first pope? Imagine he, if he was the one that showed up and saw Christ first. And you could see how the church could take that and make something out of it that should not have been. For instance, in the Old Testament, when a plague came upon the people and snakes went through the camp because they were being judged, Moses was commanded to make a uh, put on a pole a serpent, right? And they put that serpent up there, and anybody who got bit by the poisonous snake looked at the pole, and because of that, they were healed. What did they do with that pole and that snake? They turned it into an idol is what they did. And later on, one of the kings had to destroy it because it had become an idol. It was venerated more than anything. And so God kind of divides this up. He doesn't go to one man or one woman and say, you are my servant, you know, go ahead and do my bidding. Jesus is the only one that holds that moniker. Coming from God, he is it. He is the upper one. Everybody else, as far as... Humanity is concerned is on a level playing field. So we don't want to read too much into that, but there just does seem to be a reinforcement of the equality of men and women that line up with the rest of Scripture. Also, in another portion of Scripture dealing with this resurrection, it was three women who originally went to the tomb. It wasn't the men. The men were doing something else. They were sulking. I I don't know. They were hiding from the Jews. It tells us that that evening they were doing so up in an upper room that was locked. But it was three women who went to the tomb. Um, Now, again, this Mary Magdalene, I'm going to touch on this for a minute. Who was Mary Magdalene? Mary from Magdala. Uh, Maybe Mary of Bethany. There was, she was not Mary, the mother of Jesus. She was not Mary, the mother of James and Joseph or James and John. Uh, Not Mary, the wife of Cleopas that is talked about in John chapter 19, verse 25. Not Mary, the mother of John Mark in Acts chapter 12, verse 12. And not the Mary of Rome in Romans chapter 12, or excuse me, Romans chapter 16, verse 6. And the three Marys that went to the tomb, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Salome, the wife of Zebedee, the mother of James and John, sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. If you look this up, that's who she is supposed to be. So three Marys. Mary is a very common name. And also, uh, for instance, James. How many James are there in the New Testament? You have James, the son of Zebedee, James, the son of Alphaeus, and James, the brother of Jesus. We have all those in the New Testament. So James and Mary was a very common name. But this Mary, it, it appears, Mary Magdalene, who had seven demons cast out of her, uh, is Mary Magdalene, Mary of Bethany. Probably the sister of Martha and of Lazarus. And Jesus has her first in this chapter. She's the one that's showing up. She was the one that loved much. It's not by accident that Jesus chooses through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to give the writers of the scripture, specifically John, the inspiration to write Mary down because she was the one that was considered unclean doesn't this prophet know who she is and how dirty she is she is a sinful woman she was probably a prostitute because prostitutes they would have 
uh, frankincense and myrrh and they would spice their den, so to speak, with those fragrances or put that on themselves. And that was part of their trade. That's what they would use. And they would also have these dresses that they would wear to attract uh, their victims who are out there. And so maybe she was in Bethany when she was being raised or maybe she's from Magdala. We don't know. And that's up on the uh, western portion of the Sea of Galilee. But God chose her. And she was healed of her demons. She forgave much. She was the one sitting at the feet of Jesus. She was the one that was the first to the tomb. She was the one that Jesus appeared to. So in other words, somebody who was considered the dregs of society was lifted up by Christ. And I believe that's why he chose her. That God is not a respecter of persons and especially to those who are downtrodden, who are sinful. He goes to them especially and offers them this gift of salvation. She was blessed to have that as a designation. She was the first woman, first person to see Jesus after the resurrection. Number four there, there are four gospel accounts of the resurrection or three other gospel accounts that back this one up. Along with this, we have 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You guys need to make a note of this. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is the resurrection chapter. And this chapter in the book of John, John chapter 20, if it was not for John chapter 20 and the other gospel renderings that I've given you, and also this chapter, our faith would be in vain, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If there is no resurrection, we are just wasting our time. There's no reason for us to be in fellowship. And I'd like you to turn over there, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in your Bibles, we're going to pick it up from verse 12 and read from there. 1 Corinthians 15. <coughs> Paul is writing here about the resurrection, and he does this a couple of times. He lets the believers know that the resurrection has not yet taken place, and he's just establishing what is going on but Jesus has been raised from the dead and that is our hope in verse 12 it says but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead and by the way that is a belief that the Sadducees held not the Pharisees but the Sadducees if there is no resurrection of the dead then not even Christ has been raised and if Christ has not been raised our preaching is useless and so is your faith More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God or liars. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ or who have died being believers are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ the first fruits then, when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come. When he hands over the kingdom 
to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, for he must reign until he has put his enemies under his feet. And so we can end that there. This, this idea that Christ being raised from the dead, if it is not true, if there is not enough evidence for this, and by the way, the evidence is ubiquitous. It is everywhere. Uh, it is in the Bible. It is outside the Bible. The effects that his resurrection has had on the world since he resurrected have, are so noticeable the blind man would have to be the only one who could not clearly see it. And even a blind man with his understanding can hold to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Number five there, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, we are Christians in vain. We do it for no reason whatsoever. We might as well just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Now going on in verse 19. On the evening of the first day of the week, what day is that? It's Sunday. So this is just from morning to evening. It's not even 24 hours. When the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. So the doors are locked and he materializes in the room. He doesn't walk. He doesn't knock on the door. He doesn't walk through the doors. He just materializes in the room and this is his resurrection body. Now scripture does tell us that when we rise from the dead, our bodies will be like his which leads me to believe we'll be able to do the same thing once we have our resurrected bodies. But we'll only do it according to the will of God. It's not like we're going to use any gift or any power that God gives to us for our own selfish desires. If I had this gift now where I could just materialize anywhere during the week, I'd be in the Caribbean. On the weekends, I would be here. Or I would go anywhere that I wanted to if that was the case. It is not the case now because Jesus knows that we would use this for our own personal benefit. Or we would tell somebody, watch this. And you would go somewhere or appear somewhere. or You'd call them up on the phone and you'd be talking to them on the phone and all of a sudden materialize in front of them wherever they are as you're talking to them. So it would be quite fun to do that. But when we have our new resurrected bodies, we will not be acting according to the flesh. And Jesus says, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Number six here, before Sunday was over, Jesus appeared and provided proof to all of his disciples that he had risen from the dead. And he did this a total in this chapter, a total of three times. Now, verse 22 And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Number seven there is the disciples were indwelt with the Holy Spirit before Pentecost. Now, I want to see where I want to go with this first. Let me read this verse 23. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. So Jesus spells out, this, these four aspects of this ministry he is giving to his disciples. He does so first in verses 19, 21, and 26 that we will read. And what it is, is he gives them peace or assurance or a promise. So he gives them composure. Because these guys, these disciples, I'm sure there's women in there too, 
they are afraid of the Jews because Jesus, he died, he was buried. The Jews are trying to wipe out this uh, movement, which is later called the way. And the disciples are in hiding, and so they are afraid. And Jesus shows up, materializes in the room, and says, Peace be with you. Now, if you're a disciple, and you're sitting in the room, and Jesus just materializes, what are you going to think? Yeah, this has never happened before. You're probably going to lose it. You know, some people, when they are surprised like that, they faint. And I'm sure there's people that just fainted in the room or they were just taken back they probably fell over if they weren't sitting down this was huge and he goes peace be with you he goes peace be with you that's what he says to them just calm down what i mean they were probably just beside themselves and he had to say it twice peace be with it's okay hey it's me look right here see it's me and he's he's probably picking up his garment there and he's showing them where he has been pierced it's all right. Peace be with you is what he's telling him. If it was in our modern day vernacular, he'd say, hey, chill. It's all right. It's okay. You, you guys are going to do all right. So he gives him this peace. I'm going to give you the other three and I'll go back and talk about them. So there's peace. He gives him purpose. He gives him power and he gives him permission. These four things is what he gives for them or to them for their ministry. They're calling what they're going to experience it. And he does it. On this Sunday, the day of his resurrection, he shows up for them specifically. The closest, those people who walked with him for three years, they understand him. And he goes, I'm here. Everything's going to be okay. And this is what you're going to do. First, he gives them the peace. Second, he gives them a purpose or plan. He gives them a direction or aim. In verse 21, he says, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. So first he says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. He gives him this plan. This is what you are going to do. Up until this time, he had not resurrected. And he says, well, or they say, what are we going to do now? We're just saying, our Messiah is dead. Okay, so what do you want to do? Let's go hide in a room. Let's make sure that we're safe for a little while. And then thirdly, he gives him this power or this dunamis, this ability that to do this job, this purpose, they cannot do it in the flesh. Galatians chapter 3, verse 3, even talks about this when the Apostle Paul was writing to the Galatian church. He says, are you so foolish after beginning with the Spirit? Are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? In other words, they could not go out and carry out this ministry without being led and guided by the Spirit. So he breathes on them and gives them the Spirit of God, the indwelling Spirit, right? Now, this dunamis, it, it really becomes manifest. This power becomes manifest on the day of Pentecost. And then he gives them <clears throat> permission or he gives them authority. <clears throat> when they go out and they start being witnesses for Christ, people are going to ask them, so who are you, right? And he says in verse 23, If you forgive anyone's his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. In other words, he's given the ability to these disciples to deliver the promise of forgiveness and peace apart from judgment. 
That's their task. That's what they're supposed to go out and do. That the forgiveness of sins can be delivered to anyone. And this is the message that they're supposed to carry. So he gives them peace, purpose, power, and permission. In Acts chapter 1, verse 6, we're looking at this idea of power. And it reads there, So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? In verse 7 in Acts chapter 1, he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the dates that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In chapter 2 of the book of Acts, it says, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So I'd like to make a distinction here. The distinction is the indwelling Holy Spirit, which it, it incorporates us into the body of Christ. If we are in the body of Christ, we have the Holy Spirit living in us. That's what happened to the disciples when Jesus showed up and blew on them. And they actually received the Holy Spirit. Now, did he have to blow on them in order for them to receive the Holy Spirit? He did not. Was the breath that he blew like Superman, just blew them over? I don't think so. I could be wrong, but I don't think so. But they were indwelt at that time with the Holy Spirit. Did they know that they were indwelt at that time? I don't know. Scripture is silent on that. They could have known. They could have got a tingly feeling. I I don't know what it is they could have had. But he just blew. Well, I don't know if he was doing it symbolically. Because he could have done it by just saying it. He didn't have to blow on them. The blowing was for them it wasn't for him it was for them so they knew that something was going on was there a little more to the breath that he had i don't know like i just said but they had the holy spirit at that point prior to this the holy spirit could indwell somebody and leave that's what happened in the old testament all the time but this is where we have the promise that the holy spirit will indwell us and will remain with us forever. We have the Holy Spirit within us. The Holy Spirit is the one that guides us into truth and convicts us of sin. That's the purpose of the Holy Spirit. And so when we're reading scripture, the Holy Spirit in us will bear witness that this is truth. Or the Holy Spirit will convict us of sin, like don't do that. And if we're used to a particular sin, we suppress the Holy Spirit. We don't want to hear the Holy Spirit. We don't want to pay attention to him, but he is in us. This is different than what takes place in the book of Acts. Now, as Calvary Chapel goes, we believe that these are two separate things, that we are indwelt. When any believer gets saved, they are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. This is the first case of this taking place where the Holy Spirit does not leave. All the disciples were imbued, given the Holy Spirit to indwell inside. But 
in Acts chapter 2, this is the dunamis, the power <clears throat> that comes on the disciples for them to be the witnesses. They were actually given a supernatural dose, so to speak. And it is available for all believers. The confusion comes in where uh, groups like the Assemblies of God, they say, you have to speak in tongues if you get the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is not the case. If you go through the book of Acts, if you start at chapter 8, you go to chapter 10 and 11, you also go to chapter 19, it, it deals with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the power coming on these people. And in some cases, they spoke in tongues. In other cases, they did not. And so when the Assembly of Gods or the Pentecostals will say that you have to speak in tongues when you get the gift of the Holy Spirit, and we believe we are not cessationist at Calvary Chapel. We believe the gifts of the Spirit are for today. Those people who are cessationists believe that the gifts of the Spirit, especially the sign gifts, are not for today. I have witnessed the sign gifts I can bear testimony to them. I personally do not have the gift of tongues, nor do I have the gift of interpretation of tongues. I also don't have the gift of miracles. I've prayed for people, and nobody has been healed right in front of me. Uh, I would love for that to happen, but uh, it's not a gift that is mine. Does God operate like this? Yes, he does. I've seen somebody operate under the gift of prophecy, uh, most notably Louis Neely uh, from up in Sacramento, uh, he is a Calvary Chapel pastor. When he would speak using the gift of prophecy, you just knew it. I mean, it, it's like your spirit bears witness with what he's saying, and you go, ooh, uh, God's talking here. Just pay attention. And it always comports or lines up with Scripture. It's never going to be outside of Scripture. I have heard tongue, tongues being used correctly, and I've heard it being used incorrectly. And when it's used incorrectly, like, for instance, we were at a pastor's conference early on in the ministry here, and they were having an afterglow, and some of the pastors and pastoral assistants, they were speaking in tongues, and there was interpretation. And after it was all done, we got together and we started discussing this. And all of us came to the conclusion, like, this person was speaking in tongues, there was a proper interpretation, and this person was not. Or maybe the person was speaking in tongues, but the interpretation was wrong. We don't know. And so there's some wild stuff that goes on. Uh, we believe charismatically, but we're not charismaniacs. And on a Sunday morning, I'm not going to prohibit speaking in tongues, but there's something that is done fitting and in order. And if somebody was ever to break out speaking in tongues on Sunday morning, I would instruct the whole church of what this is and what's taking place. I've been in a home fellowship where the gift of tongues was used and people were speaking in tongues, but that can simply be being filled with the Spirit. It doesn't have to be the baptism of the Spirit. The baptism of the Spirit is a one-time thing, and you have to ask for it. <clears throat> it's just like, um, let me qualify that. You don't always have to ask for it. The Lord can just do it. Like for these individuals, they weren't expecting anything. It just happened to them. And it can happen at an opportune time. It can happen at an inopportune time. For me, it happened when I was praying in a home Bible study. And I didn't speak in tongues, but it's, it's like the prayer that I was praying during that time, I, I just knew something different had taken place. I couldn't explain what it was. And I had ta been taught at that time that the baptism of the Holy Spirit was not a separate event. And so I was really confused until I went to a pastor's conference and found out, oh, 
It is something different. This is what takes place. The only problem with this is when somebody gets prayed for to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, if they don't have anything happen, if they don't get a chill up their spine, if they don't speak in tongues, if they don't get a gift of prophecy, if they don't start babbling, then they think, well, I didn't get the gift. I didn't get the power of the Spirit. And it's not like that. There's even some error in the Calvary chapels. Some people say, if you'd like the gift of tongues, come up and get it. Not everybody speaks in tongues, according to the book of 1 Corinthians. And that sometimes is a, a gift, a sign gift, that is a result of having the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So to just bring this down, to put the cookies on the bottom shelf, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, if you want it, ask for it. And you say, God, I want everything you have for me. And he will give it to you. Might you feel something? You might feel something. Might you not feel something? You might not feel anything. You can ask for it at any time. The Lord may just do it when you're not even asking for it. But the point is, ask God for everything that he has for you, especially if you're in ministry. It's crucial that you have it. And you have to accept it by faith that he's going to deliver it to you. Now, I'm going to pray at the end for this, but I want to continue with the book of John. In verse 24, it says, Now Thomas called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hands into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. This would be the next Sunday, apparently. And Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. He did. There he does it again. I'm sure one of the disciples, would you stop doing that? You know, just showing up and he just materializes right there. And he probably did this for the benefit of Thomas, who we like to call Doubting Thomas. So three times Jesus extended peace to his disciples because they were fearful. You don't say to somebody, peace, if they're already at peace, right? You say peace because they're disturbed. And we know that they were disturbed. We know that there were problems because they locked the doors again. They were fearful of the Jews, fearful that they might be taken. And Jesus shows up, hey, chill out, man. It's going to be okay. It's going to be just fine. Now, he goes on. Uh, before I, I go on here to verse 27, we cannot have peace without the Spirit of Christ. And what I mean by that is the person who is not saved, they understand that there is a God. God has told us that we are without excuse in the book of Romans. Everybody knows and understands that there is a God. That is what's called general revelation. We understand that Jesus is the God through special revelation, which is his word, or somebody who is an evangelist going out and telling somebody. It would be where we pass out tracts that refer to Jesus Christ as the Messiah. That's the special revelation. But general revelation, the entire world knows that there is a God. Most of the world believes that there is a God. Buddhists don't believe in a personal God. They just believe that there is the collective up there and that we become one of the collective 
parts and we become one with the collective where there is only one and not parts. That's what they believe. But they believe that there's something beyond us, just like the Muslims, the Jews, and the Christians. And so, and, and the Hindus too. The Hindus have a multitude, a plethora of gods which are out there. So the whole world believes that. The atheists are definitely in the minority. To be an atheist, you have to deny the truth that is right in front of you. You, have, you can say, well, I'm unique. Well, you are unique because you're denying the truth. And most people don't deny the truth. They just get the truth a little bit skewed or a little bit wrong. And so those people who are unsaved have this fearful expectation of death. That when death comes, the unknown is right there. But the believer, we may have some fear of death. We may doubt a little bit. But if we're trusting in Christ, it's just a transition. It's like if you were unconscious when you die, you just wake up and you go to be with the Lord. That's the way the scripture tells us it's going to happen. And again, if Christ is not raised from the dead, we're not going to be raised from the dead either. And so there's nothing to fear, right? We're just going to cease to exist. At least that's what uh, the argument, uh, how it's laid out. And so if we deliberately keep on sinning, we will have this fearful expectation of judgment of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. That's in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 27. So there is a fearful expectation. And most people who are atheists don't want to talk about it or they start getting angry. Because if you start plucking those notes of common sense, like how can you not? Because this makes so much sense. You start plucking the right ones, their temperature usually rises and they don't want to be told that there is a God because they know in the back of their mind that there is one. God has revealed it according to Scripture. Now going on to verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Now this one in Scripture... If a Jehovah Witness comes to your door, this is not changed in the New World Translation. Open it up and say, did Thomas call Jesus Lord and God? And see what they do. That's all you need to give them. Say, I'm going to choose to believe that. It says it in your Bible. It says it in my Bible. Thomas said it. I'm going to believe it. So Thomas recognizes that Jesus is God in human form. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. By the way, that is you guys. That's who he's talking about. We haven't seen Jesus, and yet we believe. We are more blessed than doubting Thomas, who actually saw him, because he had it right in front of him. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And when we started this, I told you, that is the core of why this book is written. The rest of that verse says, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The purpose of this gospel is, or excuse me, the purpose of this gospel, without this, the resurrection, we are all lost. And this is the chapter that tells us there is a resurrection. This is our hope, the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's because of the resurrection. And so that's what we want to hold to. That's what John is trying to communicate to us. This is why people are told, Read the Gospel of John first because it gives us the ability to have faith in God. But I would caution you on this. Don't just give it to somebody and say, read it. Because if somebody is not saved, it's very difficult for them to understand the book of John. 
they have to be taught. They have to be instructed. I've always said that read the book of John, but do it by listening to somebody going through it on the radio or on the internet. Listen to somebody teach on the book of John so you can gain the understanding. It's like the Ethiopian eunuch was reading the scriptures and he didn't understand what was being said. Somebody had to explain it to him, right? He had to understand the scriptures clearly by somebody teaching them. Now, this is how Christendom works. We learn it and we pass it on. If we don't pass it on, people are going to read this and really not get it. That's why there are pastors and teachers and those with the gift of teaching. But it doesn't mean you don't have to teach somebody if you don't have the gift of teaching. We can do the simplest of tasks just by explaining certain things in the Bible. Like, yeah, Jesus was born of a virgin. Jesus was buried after he was crucified and he rose from the dead. Jesus was God in human form. And we can teach these simple truths to people. We can teach the condition of humankind. Man is sinful. Everybody is destined to hell. And if we don't accept Jesus and get his forgiveness, we are all going to go there. But we can freely have our sins forgiven. It doesn't cost us anything, even though it costs Christ everything. You can explain it as simple as that to those people who need the gospel. If they want to know more, take them to a teacher. Make sure you get them to church sometime, and we will communicate the gospel. So this resurrection, this is the purpose of this gospel, is to tell us about the resurrection. In the first part of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says it. For what I received I passed unto you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. So in less than a 24-hour period, as we go back over this chapter, three people were witnesses of Jesus Christ rising from the dead. In another gospel, Mark chapter 16, there were three women who went to the tomb to witness that Jesus had risen from the dead. There were three angels. We believe there were three angels that were there. Three times Jesus extended peace to all of the disciples. Three times he appeared in this chapter to the disciples. And later on, you have the other three gospels that tell of the resurrection. He provided physical proof of this resurrection. He provided spiritual truth, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit he gave to them. And this chapter, along with the other Gospels in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, provide adequate proof for the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. And just by way of mention, he appeared 12 times after his resurrection. Somebody counted it out and said 12 times he appeared. And the first time is just to one person and then ultimately to 500 individuals. And that's enough witnesses where we don't have to question um, the fact that it actually took place, that it was real. Now, going on in John chapter 21. This is the final chapter here. Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. This is the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee and the two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, well, 
or we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, have you any fish? No, they said. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciples whom Jesus loved, that would be John, said to Peter, it is the Lord. Can you imagine? They're in the boat. They throw the net over. They see all the fish. They go, I think I remember this. They look over to the shore again. And John goes, it's the Lord. And Peter, what does Peter do? He does a Forrest Gump. Now, I don't know if you remember Forrest Gump, if you saw that. But he was on the fishing boat, the uh, shrimp boat, going shrimping. And who was on the dock? I forget who was. Oh, it's uh, Lieutenant Diane. That's right. He was on the dock. And what did Forrest Gump do? He just walked off the boat. He, he, like he was going to walk on water over to Lieutenant Dan. That's what Peter did. He just put on his stuff and he walked out in the water and he fell right in the water and he's struggling with it. Now, cloak in the water? You know, Peter is an apostle and I, I venerate him as an apostle. It's great. But this was stupid. He just jumped into the water with his cloak on, heading for Jesus. You know, it's like, stay in the boat, bring the boat to shore, and we'll all get there safely. He didn't do that. So let's go on. As soon as Simon heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the... By the way, they, they already saw him in the upper room twice, right? Why would they question who it was? They knew who it was. And they were just not going to say a word like, were we supposed to be fishing? I'm, we're not saying anything. What were we supposed to be doing anyhow? Did Jesus tell us to do something? Are we, do, are we in trouble? You know, so they go, and Jesus just said, come on, sit down. I got some fish. Bring some more fish over. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, I wonder if they were silent during this time. Just eat your fish. It's Jesus over there. You know. I would have loved to have been there. When this was taking place, just just to see the reaction. And hopefully, Jesus will play a video playback of the New Testament. And we'll, we'll just get to sit there, and it'll be in 3D, like real live 3D, where we can understand what's going on. And we're going to laugh. We're going to cry if he does all that, if he gives us that understanding. But it would be great for him to do that. I'll put in that request. Uh, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you, Jesus said. Feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? 
Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Now, the most common interpretation of this is the word love, where phileo and agape are used, and phileo is a brotherly love, and agape is a sacrificial love, and people focus on that. I don't think that's the purpose of this. I think that sometimes they use those words interchangeably. But what I do think the purpose of this is, how many times did Peter deny Jesus? Three times. You see how these triads keep on coming up in this? And Jesus turns back to him three times, kind of like to wipe out the fact that he denied him three times. He asked him, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Okay, let's just wipe out. I don't know the man. I don't know the man. I don't know the man. So he was restoring Peter is what he is doing. Verse 18, I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved, of course this is John, was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the brothers that the disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, suppose, I, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. So this is the second time that John says it, he just said it in the last chapter, that he did so many things that they can't be written down. The whole world would not be able to carry the books if that's the case. So I want to make two points. The first point is A, B, and C there. It's provision, restoration, and preparation. Provision, he gave direction. Miraculous at times sustenance, food for the fire. He was providing for these disciples, according to this last chapter here. Especially the sustenance. He provided the food and the fire, right? Made provision for them to take care of them. God takes care of us. We need to make this personal. We need to apply this. Just as Jesus took care of the disciples, had the fish burning there, ready to go, It's all taken care of. And Jesus does the same thing for us. As long as we abide in him, he takes care of everything. Now, sometimes we worry and sometimes we fret. What does the future hold? Don't worry about it. God is going to take care of us. There is a chapter in Matthew that says, Why worry about tomorrow? Tomorrow has enough worry all of its own. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. And he's talking about food and clothing. And how interesting, he doesn't talk about shelter, but he does talk about food and clothing. So God is going to provide what we need along the way, no matter what it is. Secondly, 
restoration. All of us are going to fall. All of us are going to make mistakes. Here, as I just told you, he countered Peter's denial three times. And God is willing to restore. The only thing Peter had to do is say, yeah, I do love you. I made a mistake. And God brings us right back in to the fold. And not that we lose our salvation or anything, but we certainly lose fellowship with God. And thirdly, preparation. Peter, excuse me, Peter would be called upon to give up his life. <clears throat> and he was telling him by which means he would die. People would take him where he did not want to go. And by church tradition, it doesn't tell us in Scripture how he died. But if you've seen the movies, Peter, it is believed, was crucified, just like Jesus Christ. But he did not consider himself worthy to be crucified like the Lord. So he requested that he was crucified up, <coughs> excuse me, upside down. And according to some church historians, it happened 34 years later. Uh, is when he was crucified. So he had a ministry that lasted over 34 years until he was taken by the persecution. Now my second point, the evidence for Jesus and his ministry is everywhere. And I'm going to give you, you can either write everywhere or you can write ubiquitous. I like the word ubiquitous. It's U-B-I-Q-U-I-T-O-U-S. Ubiquitous means Everywhere. In relation to our daily lives, where is oxygen? It's everywhere. Where is the water on this planet? It's everywhere. It's in the atmosphere. It's in the oceans. It's in the lakes. The evidence for Jesus, for all intents and purposes, it is everywhere whether you go to the book of romans through creation we can know god through special revelation the bible is the most published book throughout the world uh, for all time the evidence for jesus and his resurrection is everywhere and so those are the lessons we want to take these last two chapters we have the triads that keep on showing up but it's mostly about the resurrection and that we would believe that jesus christ is lord now i'm, I'm going to close with this this idea about the indwelling Holy Spirit, just to reiterate, <clears throat> we get the Holy Spirit when we get saved. Uh, as soon as we do that, the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. The dunamis, or the baptism of the Holy Spirit, is something that takes place either concurrently with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, because some people get saved and they immediately receive the power of the Holy Spirit. Some people get saved and they receive the power of the Holy Spirit later. Some people get saved and never receive the power of the Holy Spirit. There are those who are the cessationists that would say the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, it's just the same as being saved. And there may or may not be a manifestation. And some people just deny that it is even out there. Then there's the other side that everybody must have it it is evidence that you are saved if you don't have it you're not saved and so you have this smattering of or splattering if you will of different views of the holy spirit i have a tendency just to stick with scripture we just read they had the indwelling of the holy spirit first they got the baptism of the holy spirit second you can ask for it you don't have to ask for it if you want everything that God has for you, I would say ask for it. 
If you get freaked out, if something happens to you, like, what's going to happen to me? I don't know what's going to happen to you. You know, you may speak in tongues, you may not. You may prophesy. Some people weep. Some people cry. Some people do nothing. Most of the time, it's nothing. And those people who've been told you have to have it, and they experience nothing, they walk away going, I didn't get it. And they feel disappointed that they didn't get it. And so just, you got to wipe all that stuff out. You just got to say, Lord, whatever you want for me, I'm good with it. And I'm going to ask for it. And whatever you want to do is just fine. And so I'm going to do that for you guys. I'm just going to pray for you. If you've never thought that you received it, well, great. If you receive something and praise the Lord, great. If you don't know that you received something, just receive it by faith. It's just like salvation. When you guys prayed to get saved, you, you may have gotten a tingle up your spine. You said, oh, this is so good. I'm, I'm saved now. And you get this good feeling on the inside, kind of like when you meet the love of your life. I get all tingling when I see Patty go, oh, there she is. You know, something, something like that. Or it, it can happen anyway. We don't want to worry about it. We just want what God has for us. So let me pray for you guys. Heavenly Father, we would just come before you recognizing that you are a God of mercy, that you don't judge us according to our sins. And when we ask forgiveness from you, you freely extend it, for your word says so in 1 John 1, nine. So Father, first we ask for that. Forgive us our sins. We ask for your cleansing, your purification. We ask that you would set us right. And Father, we understand from Scripture, your word, that we are indwelt with your Holy Spirit. It is the deposit guaranteeing that which is to come, according to your word. But Father, we understand from Scripture also there is something else, this empowering, this dunamis, this dynamite that is available for us. And so, Father, we call upon you. We ask that your Spirit would baptize everyone in this room, all of us. Fill us to overflowing. Give us that power to do your will, to rely on you for all things and not to trust in our own flesh. May we be led and guided from this point forward. Father, if you have gifts that you wish to give to any one of us, we ask for it, Lord. But always, according to your will and according to your desire, we wait upon you. And Father, I'd also pray that if there is doubt, you'd remove the doubt. You administer to our souls, to our spirits, and help us to be faithful to you in all things, Lord. And we'll trust in you for these gifts, the giftings that you have. In Jesus' name.